Well, in 2024, I don't know about you, but I often take our prosperity for granted, when in fact, we should not take our prosperity for granted. And it begs the question, how unique is our prosperity throughout human history? Well, our next guest has written a brilliant book that helps us understand where this wealth explosion came from. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So with me here today is uh, Dr. Stephen Davies. Um, Stephen is a, uh, Steve is an author as well as a, uh, a brilliant uh, commentator. He's also the Director of Education at the Institute for Economic Affairs in London. So welcome, Steve. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, Steve, it's uh, great to see you. I know that when we last met, it was in, uh, it's hard to believe, in 2021 in the summer, mm -hmm. and uh, you did a masterful job organizing and, and moderating a, a fascinating conference on ideas on behalf of the Institute for Economic okay. Affairs. So it's great to see you again. And uh, I very much enjoyed your book called The Wealth Explosion mm -hmm. and Understanding the Origins of Modernity. And uh, I thought it was a, a fascinating book because it really uh, peeled away the layers of, of understanding where this incredible wealth explosion came from mm -hmm. and um, how it's quite unique across human history. Um, yeah. So in it, I know this is, a, this is the larger question that we're going to be going through systematically, but um, why is our wealth this wealth explosion that we've experienced, why is it so unique in your mind? Well, the thing to realize is that if you look at the whole course of human history since the development of agriculture over several thousand years, nearly 10,000 years, in fact, what you see is that human living standards are pretty much stable. They improve very, very slowly. Uh, you do get occasional episodes of growth and innovation more of that perhaps later but those don't last and generally speaking pretty soon after one of those episodes things go back to the long-run historical norm so if you looked at say the living standards of a roman peasant in the first century a.d at the time of uh, julius caesar or augustus and you then look at the living standards of his italian counterpart in 1800 there's almost no mm -hmm. difference um, the diet is a bit different because the later guy benefits from having things like tomatoes. Uh, but otherwise, their living conditions are pretty similar. And that's the story of human history. But then since roughly the middle of the 18th century, there's been a sustained period of economic growth and rising living standards. And average incomes now are 30 times what they were uh, 250 years ago. Uh, to put it another way, 250 years ago, more than 90% of the world's population lived on the then equivalent of $1.50 a day, which is the World Bank's benchmark for absolute poverty, complete destitution. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. according to the World Bank's most recent report, the proportion of the world living on that kind of income is less than 10%. So there's been an extraordinary and, as you say, unique in the real meaning of that word, 
totally unprecedented uh, increase in living standards and in incomes over the last 250 years. And that's why this period is a kind of radical break in human history. We're living in a world which in all sorts of ways is as different from the world of our agricultural uh, forebearers and ancestors as theirs was from the hunter-gatherer world of the Paleolithic. So wow. you're talking about a breach in human history, a transformation in human history as big as the invention of agriculture. Okay, so just to put this into perspective, if we had to uh, plot line uh, poverty or wealth uh, the last several yeah. thousand years, it would essentially be a flat line with yeah. the exception of the last 250 years. Is that right? And it goes off like a rocket, yes. It's a classic hockey stick graph. You have a broadly flat line, and then since roughly 1780, it just goes up like a rocket. Almost vertical. Wow. And for a lot of us today in 2024, we just take this all for granted. We think throughout human history, people have been relatively well off like ourselves. You said, I mean, there's so many different measures, but you said some 30 times uh, in terms of, of, of wealth compared to just, say, 300 years ago. It's really quite stunning. So I, I think it's a brilliant analysis that you offer. And I think what, what I found fascinating about it is that you give a perspective um, that is truly, I think, unique. I haven't come across it um, very often. So we're, we're going to get into that in a moment. But I just wanted to back up for a second and ask you, why did you write the book? What, what prompted you to do that? Well, um, I, I've been interested in this question of how and why the modern world is so much richer and so different in a whole range of ways, actually, not just that, from most of previous human history for a long time. As a historian, this is one of the big questions that a lot of historians are interested in. And for a long time, I bought into an explanation of this, which is very popular on what you might call the free market or uh, classical liberal stroke conservative side. But eventually I, I came to realize from reading the historical accounts that this wasn't quite right. Uh, that then motivated me to write this book. Um, and what I realized in the course of the research, what really made me motivated to write this book was the realization that in many ways, the advent of the modern world and the benefits we now enjoy was something that was really quite low probability, if you will. Mm, it wasn't yes. something that was inevitable at all. It actually was the mm -hmm. outcome of a series of quite low probability events. Uh, and so that should make us both very grateful and very much aware of how contingent our fortunate circumstances are. Exactly. And, and I think it's so relevant for today because given your analysis you realize how unique the wealth today that we enjoy and experience and benefit from uh yeah. we could we could easily lose it it's actually fairly fragile would you say is that a another yeah. point that you're making yes that is precisely the point because um we tend to think that, oh, well, it's been going on like this for 250 years. It must keep on going on like that. But, well, A, that's logically incorrect. Uh, but also, it's empirically false because we can see many, many cases in the past where economic growth and dynamism has been cut short. And that's one of the key points of the book. I did mention earlier on that you... Although the long-run trend is for economic living standards and growth to flatline, you do get short-lived episodes, typically about 100, yes. 150 years, of quite rapid growth. So Rome in the 2nd century, India in the 4th century, 
Uh, most notably China in the 12th and the 13th century, basically. And China is the particularly arresting case because you can make a very strong case that it's actually a bit of a mystery why this breakthrough into greater wealth and modernity did not happen in China uh, rather than Europe. There's a whole number of reasons why you might expect it to happen there. And it looked in the 13th century as though it was going to happen. But then various things happened. But the main thing was that the Chinese ruling elite, uh, following the disaster of China's conquest by the Mongols and ruled by the Mongols for nearly 100 years, mm -hmm. they decided to quite deliberately uh, stop economic growth and prioritize social stability instead. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were very successful in this. They were very smart people. Uh, who knew yes. what they were doing. And the result was that China remained a fairly advanced civilization by the standards of the time, but it mm -hmm. lost that dynamism. It went from being the mm -hmm. most innovative civilization on the planet to being a byword for unchanging stability. Uh, and it, you know, it never recovered until very recently. And so what that tells us is that the qualities and the things that produce the growth, the dynamism of the modern world can be stopped and reversed. And the great risk mm -hmm. is that either deliberately or more likely inadvertently, we will do that. Indeed. So the Song Dynasty is certainly a, a fascinating case study that we can learn from, uh, as you outline well in the book. So just to get to the heart of the matter, uh, and then I want to go through the, the, your points uh, more systematically, what's the secret sauce to the wealth that we've experienced? Uh, if you had to well, summarize it, Stephen, how, how would um, you do that? Well, quite simply, really, because economists used to have all kinds of arguments about what the source, the origin of economic growth was. But in the last oh, 20 to 30 years, a pretty strong consensus, which has nothing to do with ideology, has emerged, which is that the origin of growth is innovation. If you like, with the various competing theories for growth, it's Joseph Schumpeter's uh, that has won mm -hmm. out. The idea that yes. the origin of growth is the creative destruction of entrepreneurial innovation, which was the argument Schumpeter right. made all those years ago in the 1930s. And so what that means is that the for economic growth to happen, and above all for it to be sustained, you need to have the institutional, cultural, social framework which will encourage and support innovation and not check and stop it. Now that sounds straightforward, but actually it's not because uh, of a number of re for a number of reasons. One is that human beings, a lot of them, do not naturally like innovation. They find innovation mm -hmm. disturbing. As Schumpeter says, it's creative destruction, and it's very easy to become fixated on the destruction part of that. We tend to notice the destruction part and not the creative part, I'm afraid. So that's mm -hmm. one thing. A lot of people don't like uh, the dynamism of innovation. And the other thing is that the already established wealthy or powerful find innovation threatening. If you're already mm -hmm. at the top of the greasy pole, you do not want some upstart climbing up that greasy pole with an innovation and knocking you off it. Right. And so the yes. people with power in society always have strong, in or most of the time, have strong incentives to try and limit or check innovation. Um, in, in economic terms, they have a strong incentive to try and live off rent rather than profit. That's how economists would put it. Uh, and that's, that's the problem. But that is the source of growth. Growth is caused by innovation. And innovation can only happen in a sustained way if you have certain institutional 
political, cultural, social frameworks for it. Exactly. So I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant thesis that basically, um, if you have elites, those who are currently in control or on the top, and that's both the public and private sector, it's certainly in their interest to continue on with that game. But Absolutely. if they, if so, you really it behooves us to think long term, right? To keep an atmosphere of of innovation. Otherwise, we risk losing the whole thing. Is that essentially another way of saying it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you you don't even need the kind of deliberate action that the Chinese elite took under the Ming Dynasty, the fifteenth century, fifteenth mm-hmm. century. It could happen anywhere as a kind of spontaneous progress in which basically legal institutions, laws, rules, the way people think about the world leads them to prioritize stability and safety over novelty, innovation, exploration, discovery, all these things, and. The, the sort of tide of innovation, if you like, can bad, gradually fade away, even without people putting deliberately putting dams or obstacles in its way. Mm-hmm. So you need to keep the culture and political framework uh, in the right shape and place for that process to keep going on, I think. Indeed. So one of the, if we look at history, we notice that uh, one of the, the key sectors uh, that you brilliantly summarize is the innovation that happened in agriculture. Can you tell us more about what, what, uh, why that was so important? Well, the reason why agricultural innovation in particular is important is because agriculture is still the foundational activity of human life. Uh, we still ultimately depend upon agriculture to produce the food that we need to live. And everything else, the manufacturing, the service sectors, they ultimately sit on top of an agricultural base. This may not remain true, by the way. Technology is now developing, which means that we might actually be able to move on from agriculture, but we're not quite, quite there yet. So you can't really get an increase in general productivity and economic activity unless you can increase the productivity of agriculture. Because the big problem for most agrarian societies until the modern age is that you simply have to have about 80 to 90% of your population available to work on the farm for the two Mm -hmm. key periods of the year, planting and harvest. If you don't, then you're going to starve. Uh, maybe not every year, but you're going to starve more often than not. And so the result is that, therefore, you simply can't free up all that labor for other productive activity. Uh, And that labor is also, a lot of it is underutilized because the nature of farming, as anyone who's actually worked for a farm will tell you, is that there are two periods of the year, planting and harvest, where you're working 20-hour days, and, you know, even that's probably not enough. And then in between those two periods, there are quite long periods where you only need to work four or five hours a day if that. And so what that means if you have a lot of your labor in the agricultural sector is that it's underutilized, it's just not fully employed. And so what, um, what is key to having all the subsequent productivity increases is to make agriculture much more productive. You need innovations in that sector to free up labor and indeed other resources as well uh, for other kinds of things which you can then, you know, make manufactured goods, provide more services and things of that sort. So when we look at then... Um an important precursor to the industrial revolution. I, I know that you talk a lot about the emergence of the modern mind, uh, the age yeah. of enlightenment. What do you mean by that? Well, um, what you find is that 
over the course of actually quite a long period, from about the later 17th century through to the uh, later 18th century, something quite novel appears in, uh, well, actually, quite independently two places, uh, Western Europe and Japan under the Tokugawa. And this is a way of thinking about the world which emphasizes several things. One of them is individualism, the idea, a particular way of thinking about the human self, the human person, uh, and a way in which the person's identity is to a greater degree than is historically normal, the result of choice, so that people are no longer defined entirely by things over which they have no choice, like who their parents are, where they live, what religion they're born into, things of that sort, but by actual choices that they make. A second thing is the idea that the world is tractable and improvable, that you don't have to simply accept or take uh, bad stuff like illness, suffering, uh, disease, uh, mm -hmm. lack of money, all these kind of things. You can do something about them. And thirdly, and related to that, the idea that the way to do something about it is through the use and exercise of reason uh, by identifying how the world works using the experimental scientific method to determine what the best way of addressing problems is and working out solutions for them, but also using that method, that way of thinking to devise uh, ways of meeting human needs and wants more efficiently, more mm -hmm. effectively. Uh, so providing the goods and services that make human life better in a more effective way. This is, of course, where market mechanisms come into play because of the way they encourage this and enable it to happen more efficiently. But you have to have that fundamental mindset to start with. And the 18th century, what we call the Enlightenment, uh, sees a major uh, development in this area. Now, to some extent, hmm. it's a development of long-standing themes in Christian Western thought and also Greek classical thought, but also to a great degree, and this is often, I think, underplayed, it's a radical break with the past because what we need to remember is the degree to which a lot of Enlightenment thinkers in Europe are critical of the inherited traditions of the civilization in which they lived. Uh, part of their whole project was to subject the traditional way of doing things to sustain criticism, to say, well, just because this has always been the way things have been done doesn't mean we have to do it this way in the future. Why not try something different? And you can see this, for example, with slavery, where the sort of dominant attitude up till the 18th century was that it was maybe regrettable although a surprising number of people thought it was a good thing, but it was inevitable, just one of those things you had to put up with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a lot of enlightenment thinkers thought, well, no, why should we? No, why should we ac simply accept this? And that was something completely novel. It had uh, not really been formulated or considered in that way before. And that was only one example of the kind of critical attitude that enlightenment thinking brought to bear on the conditions of human existence. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that it, it's fascinating. Your book struck me as a, a very articulate um, summary that said this is very unique, that in many ways, uh, this way of thinking um, of abundance and innovation and an openness to um, earnestly getting at the truth was a seminal moment then in human history, because in many ways, the, def the default was people were born very much into a tribe, a caste, um, mm. a fairly uh, confined um, set of roles that we probably don't realize is fairly recent now. Because 
your your whole articulation is is um is is very well said that people really were confined to very narrow roles uh when it came yeah. to their life they really didn't have an opportunity to think as individuals yes absolutely i mean one of the many reasons why i'm skeptical about people who can remember their past lives is that they always seem to have spent their past life as a princess or a, a priest or a warrior or something like that. Now, if they told me that they could remember lots of past lives as a peasant farmer, I would be a bit more, you know, I'd give them a bit more credence because for the overwhelming majority of our ancestors, that was the only option they had, basically. Indeed. The number of yes. the number of ways that you could live was extremely constrained. Um, and mm -hmm. this is something we, it's an example of taking our current state of life for granted. People just don't realize how constrained the options facing our ancestors actually were. Uh, we tend to focus on the exceptions, the individuals who in one way or another mm -hmm. escaped those con constraints, and we overlook the overwhelming majority who didn't. So that's, that's the reality of it, yes. So does that mean that in many ways through human history, um, you seem to be making the point that the natural default in a society is to be within a fairly authoritarian type of arrangement where stability again is valued more than self-governance. And so yeah. you have a situation where um, either where most of us are slaves or we're serfs. That's yeah. more the natural default through human history. Is that a fair comment? Well, not not necessarily slaves or serfs, but certainly peasant farmers living in a very materially constrained form of life. And what you need to realize is that Thomas Malthus, um, who you know, obviously wrote the famous essay on population yeah. in uh, at the end of the yeah. very end of the 18th century, Malthus was quite correct for the bulk of human history. For the bulk of human history, we were living in a Malthusian world where there were very very strong mm -hmm. material. Uh, resource constraints on what human beings could do and what that meant was that uh, you got the development of well two things happened one was what we've already mentioned which is that elites in that context essentially a zero-sum world where there's mm -hmm. very tight resource constraints they have strong incentives not to allow innovation to happen up to a mm -hmm. point they don't mind it because it means more wealth for them to tax but they really don't like it to go very far because it undermines their position but it also means that ordinary people those peasant farmers basically and the the small number of urban artisans they also mm -hmm. want stability and continuity because change from their point of view in that world is risky and it's quite likely mm -hmm. to be changed for the worse most innovations yeah. don't work and so if somebody tries mm -hmm. out a new way of growing farm food, for example, and it doesn't work, you've probably wasted vital resources that might make the difference between starving and staying alive over the winter. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, indeed. And so what you find is that um, most traditional societies develop very powerful social institutions, the aim of mm -hmm. which is to spread risk so that nobody starves unless everybody starves, basically. Yeah. Now, these these make society very resilient, but they also make it very static. They tend to check change and innovation. And they also tend to repress individuality and uh, standing out from the herd because that, that's seen as being dangerous and risky. So you have very powerful social pressures to conformity. This is what people like uh, Jim Scott, James, James C. Scott, famous mm. uh, yeah. anthropologist, describe as the moral economy 
Uh, it's a set of institutions which, on the one hand, protect poor people against shocks and adversity like harvest failures, but on the other hand, also stop them doing the or stop individuals from making the kind of innovations that would actually enable you to escape from the Malthusian trap. Uh, and so there's there's both this bottom-up kind of pressure, and at the same time, the elites uh, have their own reasons for pushing down on any kind of innovation that does happen. And you do get innovation, but the elites typically uh, check it after 100 years or so at most. Yeah, so I, I think you uh, summarized it very well that there's this um, almost social imperative to manage risk uh, because yeah. it, 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 everything's really at stake in terms of, of human life uh, so yeah. that people will put aside uh, innovation if it means risking their 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 livelihoods, uh, their their life itself, so it makes sense that elites really don't want innovation. That's really kind of the natural default position. Yes, um, it is indeed, especially very much during the world of scarcity. Mm. Yeah, very much so. And the one of the things which the obvious question then that uh, you have to ask is, well, why did this not work on this one occasion in in Europe and? Um, my own, the, the explanation that I used to believe in, which is still very popular, is that there was something uniquely dynamic about European society and civilization. And typically, most of the people who think this argue that Europe became peculiarly dynamic in the early medieval period, the 11th, maybe even the 10th century, certainly by the 12th mm -hmm. century. Uh, and I used to think this, but there's one big problem with this, which always did bother me, which is, if Europe was already a much more dynamic and innovative society as far back as the 11th or 12th century, why did it take six or 700 years for that to actually right. bear fruit? Uh, something not quite right there. And when you actually look at it, what you discover is that actually medieval Europe, Renaissance Europe, is actually not unique. It's in the same kind of boat as pretty much every other major civilization. All of the things that people point to, uh, you find in, say, classical China, India, the Middle East, all of the other great old world civilizations. So I don't think you can say that. On the other hand, there's no doubt Europe, and particularly Northwest Europe, does go off on a different path from the late 17th century, and particularly the later 18th century onwards. And so what is the cause of that? And the answer in, well, there, there are a number of different answers you could give. Deirdre McCloskey, for example, thinks that the reason is because there was a kind of cultural intellectual revolution in which we came to value entrepreneurial business activity as something morally estimable uh, and dignified. Uh, I think that's an important part of it, but I tend to think, I tend to disagree with her. I tend to think that that is a, a consequence rather than a cause. Mm -hmm. And what I think my, my argument is that the critical fact is that throughout the world in the 15th, 16th centuries, you have what historians call the gunpowder revolution, which is the transformation of warfare. Yes and therefore of political power by the advent of gunpowder weapons. And in most of the world, what this leads to is the appearance of what we call gunpowder empires, which are very large, uh, territorially very extensive states, uh, which dominate most of Eurasia. There's the Qing, Ming and then Qing empires in China, the Mughal empire in India, the Safavid empire in Iran, the Uzbek Sultanate, the Ottoman empire, very large empire, we forget how big it was. And these empires initially 
help with economic dynamism because they provide stable peace and good government over a large area. But what they ultimately do is choke off innovation even more because they don't face the threat of competition. Europe, however, does not go down that route. What happens in Europe is that by 1648, there's no hegemonic power. None of the competing Mm -hmm. monarchies in Europe has emerged as a hegemonic power in the way in which the Ottomans did in the Middle East, for example. Instead, you have about 10 or 12, pretty large by medieval standards, but by modern standards quite small, competing states, Britain, France, Spain, Russia, Sweden, Denmark, and so on. And the elites in these states now face a unique set of unprecedented, really, set of incentives, which is they have a very strong incentive to innovate. Because with the new military technology, if you do not innovate, you do not encourage open inquiry, experimentation, scientific investigation, Mm -hmm. you're going to fall behind logically. And that means you're going to lose wars. And that means uh, you're going to be dismembered, ultimately, which is what happens to Poland. You're certainly going to lose out. So so just to clarify then, Steve, so in that context, you're saying that this interesting variable arose, namely the gunpowder revolution, so that there was actually a military uh, stalemate, if you will, so that those European powers had to compete with each other. The elites had to compete and they were incentivized to actually innovate. Instead of squelching innovation, they said, well, in order for us to compete successfully, we need to be able to encourage our populations to innovate. Is, is yeah, that what you're no, getting at? Yes, exactly. And so you can see this very clearly in the uh, kind of language that starts to appear in the 17th century and really takes off in the 18th century, where suddenly elites throughout Europe are trying to work out how they can make their kingdom richer. Now, this had never occurred to them mm-hmm. before. It, you know, medieval monarchs never thought about how to make their kingdom more wealthy. They worried about things like how they could please God and maybe recapture Jerusalem from the infidel, this kind of thing. Perhaps right. the very earliest inclination that something would change is when uh, the Duke de Sully, the Prime Minister of Henry IV of France, was asked, what does His Majesty mm-hmm. wish for his kingdom? And his answer was, what he wishes is that there be a fire in every hearth and a chicken in every pot. And that was something yes, right. new. No previous French king would have sort of thought of that as being something that mattered. But there's a hard-headed self-interest in this, which is that the more wealth you have, the more resources you have, the more of the sinews of war you have, and the more likely you are that you won't lose wars with your competitor monarchs. And so kings mm-hmm. realize from the... Uh, early 18th century onwards, they're frantically trying to uh, encourage innovation. And the British ruling elite in particular have a strong incentive to do this because from 1688 onwards, they're engaged in a life and death struggle uh, with France. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they know their necks are on the line. If the Stuarts are restored by a French victory, then they're all for Mm -hmm. the chop, basically. And all the odds favour the French monarchy because it has twice the territory, twice the population, far more resources. Mm -hmm. So the British elite start to quite deliberately um, encourage innovation. They start to use the legislative Mm -hmm. power of the state to sweep away a lot of those traditional and inherited institutions that check innovation. Mm -hmm. And through things like the formation of the Royal Society and other things of that sort, they actually look to deliberately encourage innovation and they encourage business enterprise and give it social mm-hmm. status. And then the French, in their turn, are 
also the Dutch, who in some ways even got in there before the, the British, they also start to do this. And so you find that Northwest Europe suddenly sees this breakthrough into innovation, which then manages to sustain itself because of a series of political victories at the end of the 18th century, the so-called Atlantic yeah. Revolution. It truly is fascinating history because during this time, um, you truly had um, jurisdictions that very much focused on promoting innovation. Yeah. And I think of the reference you made, um, uh, Steve, that you know, you had the English work at improving, if memory serves me correctly, it was really from the Dutch uh, financiers, ways yeah. of actually um, better managing capital, uh, money, mm. so that you could actually uh, successfully build an innovative society. You could, you could finance the, um, uh, you know, the, the military fleets. Uh, you had an incredible time of innovation. You said the founding of, of royal society. So you had all these uh, technical, uh, technically capable professions come together at that time, which whose focus was really, truly on innovation. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a remarkable time of history, as you, as you point out. And that was really then your point then that, is that what you mean by the European divergence then? Where yes. these states yeah, were competing with each other? Yes, exactly. I think that's what it is. I think there's this period after 1648 where because of the um, combin very accidental combination, because it very easily could not have happened that way, of competitive states with a certain kind of military technology that was susceptible to technological innovative improvement, you had the sudden strong incentive on the league. So that was when Europe diverged from the historically long-run norm. And it could very easily not have happened because, this is one of the arguments in the book, if you had been an observer from the Galactic Federation, uh, to go all Star Trek for a moment, and you, you observed Earth in 1500, you would have put a lot of money on Europe having a hegemonic power within another you know, mm -hmm. 100 years, which would have been Habsburg, Spain, because the Habsburgs were in an incredibly powerful position in 1520. Yes. Um, yeah. But they didn't do it. And the reason why they didn't do it was because, critically, they failed to defeat their Dutch subjects when the Dutch rebelled mm -hmm. against Spain in the 16th century. Yeah. And that was a very close-run thing. They came so, so close to defeating the Dutch in the 1580s. And had they done that, and had the French monarchy collapsed at the same time, which it very nearly did, then Fran mm -hmm. the Habsburgs would have ended up pretty much you know, masters of Europe. But that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So it was a very... That's what I mean by saying you know, a while ago, that this was a low probability outcome. But once that low probability outcome had happened, you got this yeah. uh, process of, of innovation. Interestingly, it does happen independently in Japan at the same, roughly the same time, under the Tokugawa shoguns who ruled Japan from uh, 1600 onwards. But what we don't know, it's an interesting counterfactual, is whether or not that would have continued in Japan uh, given Japan's isolation from the world uh, up until, you know, the American intervention in the middle of the 19th century. It, we don't know whether that would have kept going. What we what we do know, of course, is the European one, this divergence, as you correctly call it, did keep going. And that was the key thing. It uh -huh. didn't stop, partly because the elites could no longer have an interest in stopping it, uh, but also because people who now supported change, proto-liberals and actual liberals, 
uh, were able to win the political arguments at the end of the 18th, the start of the 19th century, uh, and ensure that this process of innovative uh, economic dynamism continued. Mm-hmm. So the the, um, the behaviors of innovation are well laid out in your book in terms of there's, there's certain behaviors that allow for innovation. So one of which is uh, kind of a release of control and empowerment, if you will, of mm-hmm. uh, different actors across society to innovate. So instead of the elites trying to take control of everything, they just actually say, well, yes, we need innovation, so innovate. And part of that is through healthy debate and discussion or freedom of speech, um, a, a deep skepticism. What are the other kind of behaviors that, that you think are, are so critical for innovation to occur? Well, you, you mentioned, I mean, there's a, a wider aspect or, or attitude in the past beliefs, which is simply letting, leaving people alone. Deirdre McCloskey is very good about this. She says, you know, in, in her more recent <laughs> book, Why Liberalism Works, she describes how the great insight is, well, if you, you just leave people to do their own thing. But then the yeah, question is... let them well, live their lives. Let them live their lives and, you know, stop trying to manage them. Um, but the question is, well, what yeah. is their thing? And I did say a while ago that most people don't like change, but there is kind of minority of people who are, you know, the tinkerers, the investigators, the explorers, the discoverers, the people who do like change. Yeah. And so the critical thing is that they are left alone. <clears throat> and so the other thing I would mm-hmm. mention is what uh, Joel Moker calls a culture of tinkering or experimentation, you start to get um, a whole subculture appearing in large parts of Western Europe, not just in the British Isles, also in mm-hmm. low countries in Belgium, in France, in parts of Germany, of people who are constantly like trying out new ways of doing things, uh, trying to work out mm-hmm. how you can make a, literally make a better battery, for example, with Alessandro Volta yeah. later on in the early 19th century, uh, trying to work out how you can do things slightly more effectively mm-hmm. and efficiently. Now, we know wow. that I think... So all are, are they called entrepreneurs, Steve? The, well, some of them are entrepreneurs, but a lot of them are uh, not themselves entrepreneurs. They're they're basically, if you like, invent guys with a, mm-hmm. a they got the elephant's child's insatiable curiosity. They just want to see mm-hmm. how you can do something better. Now, I mean, the classic example would be James Watt and Matthew Bolton. Matthew Bolton was yeah, the entrepreneur. Right. James Watt was mm-hmm. the tinkerer and inventor. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, we know. We can tell from the historical evidence that people like that exist in all times and places because China is Chinese history is full of people like that. But what mm-hmm. you don't have in most human times and places is a culture and an institutional framework which allows those tinkerers and inventors to get on with what they're doing and ally themselves with with uh, you know entrepreneurs who will then make their you know visions and tinkering a reality. Uh, and that's how the innovation mm-hmm. happened. It is worth saying, exactly. what is partly, partly important, I, I really would emphasize this because it's highly relevant to the era now, is that exchange of ideas and also copying and imitation is a crucial part of this process. Um, mm-hmm. We tend to think that major innovations are produced by one person who has a kind of light bulb going off in their head moment. But actually, as uh, Matt Ridley points out in his uh, recent books on innovation, that's not how it happens. What you actually find is that lots and lots of people are working on the same problem at the same time, and they all borrow from each other. So if you think about the telephone, we remember Alexander Graham Bell. Um, we forget mm-hmm. that he was only one of, you know, I don't know, about 30 people at least who were working yeah, on the technology. Exactly. 
Uh, and the only reason we remember Bell is because he was being a Scotsman, got out of bed early in the morning and went down to the patent office and patented his phone. <laughs> And his major competitor, Elisha Gray, had a leisurely breakfast and didn't get down to the patent office until after yeah. lunchtime to discover Bell. Had, well, you know, in, in, in Canada, school. we're very proud of uh, Sir Alec. Uh, uh, with uh, we're very proud of Bell, of course, as as Canadians, yes. um, because it's an interesting story of innovation. Um, mm. And in my own experience in in the world of entrepreneurship and technology. There's like an ecosystem. That's so true, Steve. There's a kind of a community of people who feed off of each other. It's a culture, um, a, a systematic kind of set of behaviors that people value and say, wow, they're doing it better down the street here. Maybe we should figure out what they're doing and, and copy it. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, no, I, I think that's very true. So we need to value, what did you use the word tinkerers? Uh, yeah. And the entrepreneurs who kind of bring it all together and keep improving those widgets. Is that what you're saying, Steve? Yeah, very much so. And we, we, we shouldn't think purely of like mechanical devices, which is what we're talking about here, or um, mm -hmm. IT, for example, in the modern context. I mean, the new idea, the new way of thinking might be a new way of teaching, a new way of delivering a service like making a cup of coffee or uh, a new... A, a new in, a new artistic idea, a new kind of guitar riff or something like that, you know, or a new way of arranging music. It, it basically just means constant, not accepting the way things have always been as a kind of fixed and definite given, but as, you know, messing around with things, trying to see if you can do it better or just do it differently. And then if you just do it differently, right. maybe you find you like the result. Uh, and that is this, as you say very correctly, it's a culture. Uh, and that is what generates the kind of yeast if you will that generates all the ideas that the the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and others then um you know take on board and, and run with in schumpeter's process mm -hmm. by the way i would add something which is very important and you alluded to it earlier is the development of finance uh, in what we call the financial revolution yes. of the 1990s right uh, we, which the late charles kindleberger wrote about very eloquently mm -hmm. was what finance enables you to do it's a kind of time machine which enables you to bring money from the future into the present to create yeah. the things that will make that future money possible. So instead mm -hmm. of having to simply save up um, lots and lots of literal gold and silver coins to invest in the new factory to make widgets, what you can do is go to the bank, the credit creator, and say, look, I have this idea for a widget making factory, and I predict, you know, my confident expectation is it will yield mm -hmm. this return over this many years with a discount. Uh, and what you then get given is a credit. And what that basically is, is taking that future income from future widgets, but bringing it into right. the present, where it's used yeah. to actually build the widget factory, which then makes the widgets that discharge the credit. And so credit... Exactly speeds up the whole process enormously. And at the moment, credit and finance yeah. has a bad reputation, but we, you know, we forget at our peril just how transformative modern finance has been. Exactly. And, and so within that context, Stephen, I think it's a, a very good case study. You realize how fragile this kind of ecosystem is yeah. in the sense that within the financial world, if you don't have a high trust society and a society where you feel like you have the freedom, um, mm. and that is that you don't have some kind of ar arbitrary intervention by some authority, that mm. kind of innovation will not happen because it's, yes, it's, 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 it's very fragile. Um, and I've, I've seen it up close. So what happens is um, 
you can see that is a powerful case study where the freedom to let people live their lives is so critical. And this is in complete contrast, I think, for a lot of people today in power. I don't mean to pick on bureaucrats, but people who don't know how much they don't even know. Like they, they are so ignorant about the complexity of these systems and these systems and the unpredictability of them. That's the nature yes. of innovation. You can't predict it. So what happens is it, it begs the question, this becomes a very important part of the culture of kind of taking on a very humble attitude that we can't centrally control everything in society. And in fact, it's impossible to do so. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I would say that perhaps one of the most striking and damaging features of the last 40 years or so, I would say, has been the growth of an idea that life is something that should be predictable and explainable and controlled, captured in yeah. hard mathematics or in graphs or charts. And this is something right. which affects both the public and the private sector. In fact, if anything, the private sector, you know, slightly more, I think, at the moment. And it's this idea that everything should be mm -hmm. predictable by standardized models. And what this overlooks and simply like, disregards is the messiness, complexity, unpredictability, and randomness of much mm. of the actual world, and the human world in particular. And to the extent that you try to act on the basis that if the world is not predictable and all the rest of it, it should be, you're going to have some really, really bad results because you will destroy that very fragile kind of culture, that yeast culture of innovation and dynamism that we spoke oh. about a moment ago. Uh, and you can see this happening all over the, all over the place, uh, not just from government. It, it tends to uh, generate elsewhere in, in the private sector as well. It, it reflects, I think, certain intellectual trends uh, of the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, I'm tempted to say an excessive interest in mathematics. I partly blame the computer for this. I think that the computer has given us the ability to manipulate data on such a large scale and such low mm -hmm. cost that we now tend to think that we understand more about the world and know more about the world than we actually do. Yeah. And as you say, we need to recover yeah, that. We, and humble we, out. No, and I, I think that's very true, um, Steve, in the sense that you have almost this, um, some some have nicknamed them the, the so-called uh, self-anointed or the good and the great, where you have enormous power or enormous wealth with the assumption that they are, dare I say, more intelligent than everyone else and that they can centrally control and run people's lives. And this is so presumptuous and, and fr frankly, arrogant and, and does not understand the history of how we've gotten to where we've gotten to. It, I mean, absolutely. It is very tempting if you are in a position of great power and privilege and wealth to think that you got the fact that you have this wealth means that you must be really smart and smarter than other people. And, you know, it's worth reminding uh, the wealthy and successful, I'm afraid, of the degree to which they are the beneficiaries of, of luck because of the sheer element of randomness yeah. in, in the process mm -hmm. region where they are. Uh, and so at the moment, we have people like the World Economic Forum uh, and, you know, meeting, as mm -hmm. we speak, in Davos over there in Switzerland, um, you know, who basically have these grand designs for the planet. Now, 
I don't buy into all this kind of conspiracy theory nonsense that Klaus Schwab is sitting there on a mountaintop in Switzerland stroking a white cat, basically, mm -hmm. and plotting world domination. Right. Uh, but what I think he and the people associated with the WEF and much else besides have is this totally hubristic vision of what their own capacities are, mm -hmm. which is extremely dangerous. And the right. trouble is, of course, that the politicians then, mm -hmm. I think, dazzled by this. And also they themselves are very susceptible to that uh, that kind of track. I would mention two other things as well. One of them uh, is the fact that if you leave people on their own, you have to trust people. Uh, if you're going to do what mm -hmm. Deirdre McCloskey correctly advocates and basically leave people to do their own thing, you have to be confident that on the whole, most of the time, they'll make mistakes, but they'll generally do their, you know, do what's best. Uh, you have to basically agree with John Stuart Mill that most people are the best judge of what their own self-interest is. Something Mill argues very forcefully. Whereas the the kind of dominant idea of our professional classes, in particular, is that actually most people do not know what is good for them, whereas they do, right. and exactly. therefore what we need yeah. to have is a system where. Uh, people are guided, nudged, maybe, uh, to do what mm -hmm. the educated, qualified professionals think is the right thing for them to do and not follow their own interests. And this is incredibly presumptuous, but also a very dangerous attitude. Mm -hmm. The other problem is that if, for people who are involved in business, your goal, obviously, is to try and make profit. Uh, and you can only make profit by producing the better mousetraps, uh, providing a product that the mm. customer benefits from. However, the, this is hard work, and it's also risky because you may have a perfectly good mousetrap, and then some one of these tinkerers comes along, and they produce a better mousetrap, and suddenly you're out of business or facing a severe squeeze on your profits. So the great temptation is to seek to get your money, not from profits, but from rents, by establishing a monopoly or being given a monopoly of some kind. Exactly. A state of economic privilege. And so what you find throughout the whole of history, I'm afraid, this is not a new story, is that wealthy mm -hmm. people engaged in commerce, business, trade, whatever, they cozy up to uh, people with power, rulers, um, kings, governments mm -hmm. these days, and they try to get the kings to give them uh, special privileges to screw over their mm -hmm. competitors, basically. Uh, what that means is that they basically become a rent seeker, a rent drawer, sometimes quite literally a tax collector. That was a very common way of doing it, uh, mm -hmm. rather than an entrepreneur who creates new value. And we, I'm afraid at the moment, we have a lot of um, institutions and practices which are of that kind, where, for example, you have companies whose main business is getting monopoly contracts to provide services from government. And it's not the yeah. service, it's the getting the contracts. So they're very good at that, but they're not necessarily mm -hmm. providing the service. Uh, and so we can see this a lot. And I think that that's the, that as well as the kind of hubris of elites of all kinds and mm -hmm. political elites in particular, there's also the constant temptation on commercial and business elites to try and go down the easy route of having a mm -hmm. guaranteed uh, stable rental income rather than run the risk of profit where you might make more money, but you're also less secure. No, I, I think you're very, uh, uh, that's very well said, Steve, in the sense that uh, crony capitalism or uh, corrupt capitalism <clears throat> wants to shut out, what is it again? Oh, competition. And so yeah. they are really uh, 
undermining uh, healthy competition and healthy innovation. And uh, they're colluding often using the power of the state to do that. That's basically yeah. what you're saying. Is that right, Steve? Yeah, very, very much so. And one of the, I mean, this is one of the classic areas where you can see this happening is in the area of intellectual property, where I think in the last 50 years or so, since the 1970s, basically, we've seen an enormous and quite unjustified extension in the scope of intellectual property. So intellectual mm. property is originally, cre it, it's not like natural property and other things. It's the creation of the state. It always has been. And it has a, the justification for it is that it provides an incentive for innovation. But what we've seen since the mm. 1970s is that all kinds of things now get patents that would never have been given a patent in the 50s or 30s or 40s. Mm -hmm. And the process now, the way in which it is operated and enforced, it tends to cut short that process of emulation, exchange of information, copying uh, mm -hmm. and borrowing that we talked about earlier. Uh, and, of course, we now have the well-known phenomenon of patent trolls who are not interested in actually doing anything. They just want to hold a patent yeah. so they can uh, threaten mm -hmm. everybody else with lawsuits. And that that's, uh, I mean, you can argue about whether or not you should have any intellectual property. But what I think I would argue very strongly is pretty clear is that the way the institutions of intellectual property have developed over the last 50 years or so, maybe 60 years, but certainly 50 years, uh, is one in which it inhibits innovation rather than encouraging mm -hmm. it. And what it does is it generates very large rents for the holders of patents and copyrights, people like the Disney Corporation. Exactly. Uh, and no, I, this I, I is a, a very good insight. effect. Uh, so we really need radical reform in this area because that's an example of precisely what you talk about, the collusion right between uh, large private interests and political power no doubt agrees with mm -hmm. the odd campaign donation, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, will, uh, you know, have very bad effects long run on the whole culture of innovation and uh, therefore of growth. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in, in some ways, it, it also moves us into the territory where if you have collusion, where the state ultimately, the big state is uh, colluding with uh, big uh, crony capitalists, you have also... Um, a deliberate attempt to manipulate the culture uh, to mm. undermine the, the, the freedom of the individual. Does that move us inevitably into the world of fascism where you have a kind of a, a melding together of state control over um, a large uh, corporations who are kind of feeding off of each other, but doing mm -hmm. it in a particular way that undermines uh, people's rights and freedom. So you have censorship, which you have um, significantly today. Uh, we, we've found a lot in terms of the revelations of the, uh, the Twitter files, where you have all kinds of government agencies systematically moving in and censoring all kinds of information. Um, are you concerned about that? Very much so. Uh, I mean, I'm leery of using the word fascism because as a historian, I tend to think that that's a particular historical term, which refers to a particular kind mm -hmm. of historical movement with certain specific qualities. More generally, though, yes, you can have the threat, and I think we do have the threat, of a kind of oligarchical 
um, corrupted mm-hmm. capitalism, which is where you have an economy which is still, you know, dom- the state does not own most productive assets, they're still in private ownership, uh, mm-hmm. but where it's dominated by an oligarchy that depends for its position, not upon mm-hmm. coming out on top in free competition, but on favoritism by political power, uh, and mm-hmm. which you get this un, unholy alliance between private actors and state agencies, often intelligence exactly. yeah. services, to restrict private liberty, free speech, inquiry, the whole process of intellectual conversation, which is obviously a vital part mm-hmm. of that whole culture that we were talking about. And you can see this very clearly with things like uh, social media, where it's become very clear and we now know from the stuff that has become public since Elon Musk took over Twitter or X as he now wants to call it for some reason uh, that there was collaboration and collusion between uh, intelligence services, government departments and uh, the platforms such as Twitter to basically restrict or downgrade certain kinds of speech, certain arguments and promote and encourage others. Now governments have been doing this kind of stuff for you know centuries nothing new in this mm. and people also these days are quite rightly alarmed by disinformation or fake news but again this is not new uh governments mean deliberately starting rumors and stories uh you know ever since oh, i don't know good heavens you know the story about nero playing the liar while rome burned that was fake news put about by his enemies in the senate mm-hmm. uh not that he didn't deserve it, but it was fake news. So there's nothing new in this. But what we see now at the moment is this kind of thing happening at an unprecedentedly high level. Uh, so mm-hmm. almost any kind of there's the great there are really really severe dangers in this. Dangers to civil liberties, obviously. Mm-hmm. Dangers in the demonization of uh, people who challenge the orthodoxy that the dominant mm-hmm. groups in society want to. Uh, enforce. I mean, the fact that it is an orthodoxy is something that should alarm mm-hmm. us, because in an open society, a free society, there should not be an orthodoxy in the sense of a whole set of beliefs that are beyond questioning. Because exactly, I, 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 I think in the Canadian context, and I think this is uh, certainly in in other Western countries, including the UK. Uh, Steve, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you do have within the universities of all places, a profound orthodoxy based on a kind of a cultural Marxism, a kind of a nihilistic postmodernism where there is no truth. I mean, that's incredibly destructive because people self-censor. They're not innovative. They don't really have a a freedom, if you will, to innovate. Is that is that how you see yeah. things as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say I, I'm leery of the term cultural Marxism because I think Marx himself would be absolutely horrified by this. I mean, the kind of ideas that are coming out of the academy, he himself would absolutely hate them uh, because, for one thing, they're pure idealism. They're the idea that it's ideas that right. matter, not material reality, which is the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what Marx believed. Uh, it's more postmodernism, which you also mentioned. I think these are, uh, as somebody, actually a Marxist historian once said in my hearing, the latest intellectual disaster to come out of France. Uh, it's yes. a bunch of ideas <laughs> that were generated largely in France in the 1970s and 80s, and which has been spread into the Western Academy. Right. Um, and the they are having an extremely stultifying effect upon uh, academic debates and intellectual discussion and the like. Now, you can argue about how and why that is. I, my own view is that I have no problems actually with any one individual university being 
intellectually homogeneous. The problem is that all of the universities are alike. If we had like one yeah, university exactly. which was very, uh, very woke progressive and another university that was Catholic traditionalist and another one that was classical liberal, mm -hmm. broadly, yeah. um, that would be mm -hmm. fine. Uh, the problem is that all our universities right. are so much the same. And my, my own explanation for that is that it's because universities um, have become essentially, they have departed from their main function, which is the exploration of ideas and the pursuit of scholarship. Mm -hmm. And what they have become essentially is certification machines. The main job of universities now is to provide young people with certificates which give them access to high-paid and high-status jobs, they think. Uh, increasingly, they don't. It's beginning to dawn on them. They don't. That's the idea. And what this has led to, I think, is um, an enormous overproduction of graduates, I think it's fair to say. We have far too many mm -hmm. people who are qualified for elite positions. There's way more qualified people than there are actually positions. And mm -hmm. what this has led to is increasingly desperate competition between the people who want to get those positions to distinguish themselves from other people just as well qualified academically as themselves. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of this kind of ideological uniformity that we can see in higher education actually comes from that because it's a way of showing that you are more virtuous according to a very narrow criteria of what goodness is than the next person mm. and therefore should get that job uh, and so i think that ultimately the thing we're seeing in universities it doesn't actually have an intellectual cause i think it has to do with uh, the way basically we're producing a ton of professionals of a certain kind vastly in excess of the demand for their services uh, which is another reason mm -hmm. also for the enormous growth in bureaucracy in academia i mean i, I forget the statistics of something like some of the highest paid people in canada and the united states are university presidents deans and people of that sort and there's been an yeah. incredible growth in the number of you know, administrative staff at universities, whereas the number of faculty has remained pretty constant. Uh, and I think that's because you've mm -hmm. got to find jobs for all these graduates. And this is one of the places where they do find jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly interesting within the Canadian context, you have so many universities that are dominated by a bizarre intellectual orthodoxy centered on diversity, equity, and inclusion that makes a mockery of the intellectual uh, mission. Uh, to seek the truth, uh, to be able to uh, undertake their mission. So I think what's happened is there's rapidly becoming a, a question mark around why are we funding these institutions? I mean, it's just, they've been yeah. an utter, utter mockery of their intellectual mission. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, there is a, there's an underlying point anyway, which is that why should the general taxpayer, including lots of people who have never been to university or whose children are not going to go to university, mm -hmm. fund... Uh, institutions yeah. which are basically privileging the already well-off, because that's most of the people who go to yeah. university and benefit from it, the, mm -hmm. the professional classes and the middle classes. So mm -hmm. there's always been that question anyway. But there should be a question of, well, if the taxpayer is going to fund these universities, why should they fund something which is, you know, putting forward a set of views which the great majority of the public don't belong in. That in turn, though, is okay. dangerous because it suggests that the university should come under the direct control of the state and the state should do things like setting the curriculum. And that's mm -hmm. also really, really bad. Uh, what we should be thinking about is, uh, as I say, 
re really rethinking what the role of the university should be. And to go back to the point I made, I think the big problem, almost independent of the funding, is that we have come to use universities as a way of uh, deciding who has access to the high paid, high status jobs. And that's what we need to break, really, because until the 1970s, you didn't need uh, a lot of academic qualifications, you know, a bachelor's degree or even a master's or a PhD to mm -hmm. get the kind of jobs that now require them. And it's not clear that you you need it now because, as my friend Brian Kaplan has argued at length, uh, there's almost no connection between the work and the skills and the knowledge that people acquire doing a degree and the work they do once they graduate. There's about four or five percent of people where that is true: engineers, doctors, physicians, architects, uh, a few others. But that's it. For the ninety-five percent of graduates, they they will never use the stuff they learn in university in any of their subsequent work. Now, that doesn't mean the stuff they've learned in university is no good. It may be valuable in itself, but the idea that you should make their having a degree a requirement to get a job. Uh, seems then highly questionable because if the degree has no bearing on the work they're doing why use that exactly uh, yeah that's right and the answer is because the degree sends a signal to the employer which is that this person is reasonably bright reasonably hard-working rule compliant and conformist which is what companies particularly mm -hmm. large companies look for in their employees so it's a shortcut mm -hmm. as a way of identifying which people it's worth having a punt on Mm -hmm. So the introduction then of so-called diversity, equity, inclusion, or woke ideology, not just across the public sector by elites, mm. but also in uh, particularly large corporations. You've seen the phenomenon of so-called woke corporations um, and then the backlash on many different examples you've seen um, uh, Budweiser lose, lose literally tens of billions of dollars in brand capital a la Bud Light and, 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 and things, those, those kinds of examples. Is that introduction of kind of an imposition of a, an ideology, a correct way of thinking, does that concern you then as a way to undermine innovation and then ultimately our ability to be a prosperous society then? Oh, very much so. And it, it's, well, I think there are, there are a couple of things to say here about this. One is that to the extent that if you're working in a firm, there is only one set of viewpoints or opinions that is permissible for you to openly hold as mm -hmm. an employee. Otherwise, your fellow employees are going to, uh, you know, grass you up, as we say in Britain, to the uh, DEI people in the HR department, um, that is obviously going to have a saltifying effect on the internal dynamism of the business. And it's going to, uh, more broadly, to the extent that this leads to uh, a public culture which emphasizes conformity to rules rather than questioning rules and innovation, it's going to threaten and undermine that that whole innovative culture that we've been speaking about. Uh, but, but also, it's worth saying that this is this only happens because of a phenomenon which is a recurring problem with large businesses not so much smes and that is that if you're not very careful those businesses are run not in the interests of 
the customers or even the shareholders, but in the interests of their yes. professional staff, particularly their senior managers, but also mm-hmm. increasingly their middle managers. Now, this is not a new story. I mean, the, the, this was identified as a problem back in the 1930s. Uh, it's a recurring mm-hmm. issue with large firms that you get the capture of the whole firm by the senior management and the management more generally, mm-hmm. and both the shareholders and the customers lose out in this. And what that means is that those companies are going to be run almost certainly in a way that is non-innovative or not innovative in a good way because the managers are the an example of what I was talking about earlier, the people who are at the top of the greasy pole right now who want to maintain their position, uh, which is what a lot of this is actually about. Now, in some ways, there is still the ultimate check given that we still do have a market economy, more or less, of consumer boycotts and consumers simply mm-hmm. not buying the product, which is what's happened with Anheuser-Busch, as you alluded to. Uh, mm-hmm. So at least with private business, there is that ultimate check that the consumers can just walk away, and they will do in large numbers. Uh, if, you know, we, Because if you want a, a company to sell your product, you do not want that product to come attached with moralistic lecturing most of the time. Particularly, that's mm-hmm. not the job of the company, basically. You go to church to get that, uh, or somewhere else. You certainly don't want to get it from a company that's trying to sell you beer. Uh, and also, of course, it may well be beliefs and ideas that you don't share or don't agree with. Uh, so there mm-hmm. is that ultimate consumer check. Uh, the problem is, of course, that it can take quite a long time uh, because of the way in which both consumers and shareholders are uh, no, locked out of real decision-making power by the, the senior management in these companies. And they're all part of a very similar class. I mean, one of the striking features of uh, things in both Canada and the UK and also in the US is the degree to which our professional managerial class is uniform in terms of its tastes, the universities it goes to, the beliefs they hold, even where they live. I mean, part of what we've seen in North America in particular is this clustering phenomenon where everyone tends to live in neighbourhoods where everybody else consumes the same things, votes the same way. Uh, you know, there are bits of Toronto where, you know, you would think, good Lord, is, is everybody working in the same few companies here it's so uniform and this is this is a spontaneous phenomenon nobody planned this but it is i think a damaging mm-hmm. phenomenon because there's nothing like going to your local bar and being confronted by people who disagree with you to make you realize right. maybe there's other ways of thinking about the world well and i i think that's a, a very good insight is that um this form of uh conformed thinking whether it's through a, an ideological lens like DEI or whether it's through groupthink, um, kind of a, a, a mindless peer pressure, um, it behooves us to think critically, to be able to think uh, individually. Uh, otherwise, we don't really have those tinkerers. We, we don't have those yeah. people that are innovators. And everything's really ultimately at stake here. It's not just kind of going along with the flow of thinking, but this ultimately has real implications on yeah. our wealth our standard of living and our quality of life it's so it's, it's oh, i think it's a very profound thesis that you confront us with today Stephen. yeah absolutely because the, the great if you go back to go back to our starting point if you realize that the world in which we live and the process that has created it are historically unprecedented and are the product of a particular 
uh, fortuitous and random concatenation of circumstances, as P.G. Woodhouse might have said, then you realize how if you get a cultural shift towards an emphasis upon conformity to an orthodoxy, uh, lack of risk-taking, lack of support for innovation and change, all of which we can see in many areas of life right now, uh, lack of trust in ordinary people and their ability to make their own decisions and their own choices Indeed. Emphasis instead upon uh, the superior knowledge of technically qualified experts so-called uh, then yes you are going to that will come to an end now um you know there, there are the chinese interestingly have chosen they are still very keen on innovation but they also want to have innovation that's controlled by the state or by the party in fact mm-hmm. uh, Xi Jinping and his current associates now uh, you know good luck with that for them that that's not going to work i can predict that quite confidently but they still like the idea of innovation um and uh, it, it's a very bad warning on a geopolitical scale that in the short term future uh we as a society north north northern north america western europe japan seem to have given up on the questioning attitude uh in the long run it could be bad for the entire planet because i don't think the chinese strategy is going to work either i mean that's a kind of Hmm. attempt to create a unicorn basically an imaginary a chimera something which is an impossible combination so yes we are we are there are potentially great dangers to this and in a way we need to encourage a different way of thinking a way of thinking where, first of all, people are never dogmatically certain um, about what they believe. I mean, personally, I like to tell people I'm never 100% certain about anything. Uh, I can, what I can do is say, well, I'm like 90% sure that X is the case, but in this other thing over here, I'm only like 50% sure. I'm open to. So you, but the point about that is that mm-hmm. you hold all your beliefs with a, a kind of percentage degree of certainty. You're then open to challenge. You're open to questioning. Uh, and if somebody produces compelling evidence or a powerful argument, you might think, well, okay, <clears throat> you still haven't persuaded me, but I'm not as sure as I was before. I've adjusted my, you know, wow. degree of certainty. That that's the way to think about it. And also, you should ask yourself constantly questions like, you know, how do you know that? That's a very simple mm-hmm. but powerful question. Very often you might think, well, I know the X. Well, how do you know that? Is it just because somebody's told you that? If so, how do they know it? You need to ask these questions. Exactly. Well, I think those are very um, appropriate uh, parting words, uh, uh, Dr. Steve, Steve uh, Davies, um, is to encourage us to uh, carry about our lives with uh, tolerance and openness to reason. Um, an ability to keep an open mind, because what's at stake is not only the ability to learn from each other as we seek the truth, but also our prosperity and the wealth that we often take for granted. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Steve, for joining us today in this far-reaching conversation uh, so that we can not only maintain um, our way of life uh, and that we can also live with each other in, in peace and harmony for sure. So thank you so much for your leadership, uh, Steve, and for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free.
comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.